0: Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon, so let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Listen, man, my family's had one of them weeks. You ever just had one of those weeks? We, uh, we got done with Sunday last week. I want to welcome you. Glad you're here. And, uh, you know, we got done with Sunday last week, and, and I got that sick stuff. You know, where I was supposed to be preaching in North Carolina for a couple of days and couldn't do it. And just all that hacking and carrying it on and fever and all that fun stuff. Anybody had that yet this year? Any, hey, good. Uh, I need you to leave. Uh, we just need to make sure my right now can, stays healthy. And, and so we, I, I missed an engagement. And Wednesday was at Vanderbilt with our little Chloe. And, and had a wedding this weekend in Nashville. A wedding in Nashville. It was so good. But on Thursday, my kids started dropping. You know what I'm talking about? They started dropping. Sadie Bug started having a fever and feeling all bad. And, and then she had the strep, you know, the strep throat. That's fun. And, and then guess what happened on Friday morning? Her brother wanted in on it. So he got the strep throat and, and all that good stuff. So head to Nashville on Friday. I decided I was going to take my Chloe, my middle daughter. She'd be my wedding date because now my wife couldn't be my wedding date. And, and I was going to take her out of the cesspool that was our home and all the disease there. And so we get there, have a great rehearsal Friday night, wake up Saturday morning fever and throwing up every which way as we were all the way on the other side of the state and uh you know i talked through this summer about how much i hated doing outdoor weddings in the summertime because they were miserably hot well i had an outdoor wedding on saturday on the west side of the state 31 degrees at three o'clock snowing $160 later at Target, Chloe, my little 60-pound girl with fever throwing up, was about 150 pounds of all soft, kind of warm clothes that I could find and put on her. And man, we battled to come all the way home last night. And she has strep throat and the flu. And, And then finally, our last little kid, Avery, went down this morning. With flu and sickness and so in our home is strep and flu and all those fun things. And, and so if you want a play day with our kids just to come on over and, and get it out of your system, come on. And, and I tell you what, weeks can be hard like that, can't they? Coming into a Sunday can be a little bit difficult. And man, we know that. You know, I think just this past week we had our, our midterm elections and depending on how you feel about those things. Could have been a hard week for you this past week, Right? But it's a wonderful reminder, even today, that it, our faith ought not be distracted by some donkeys and some elephants. Because the God that you and I serve is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And behind the scenes, this lion, our king, will not relinquish his throne. And no matter what we come in from a hard week with, and God is still at work, and God is still. On the move. You know, a few Saturdays ago, uh, my family and I attended what would be for my children their first ever University of Tennessee Vols game day. Man, it was something special. Almost all my kids made it. Uh, My Sadie, uh, she's our youngest daughter. She's not really into football as much as she is shopping, so she went shopping that day with Mimi, right? That was her thing, and man, we took all the rest of our kids, and for every college game day I do it uh, in Knoxville, we, uh, we always park kind of in the south Knoxville side of the Henley Street Bridge, right? There's a place called Rush's Music, and, and so we park over there, and I love it because you get to walk across the bridge, And you kind of get to see everything that's happening. In fact, um, Aaron captured a couple of these moments. This is me and Bennett. And, And what I was doing is we started down the bridge. I was just waiting for my kids to see Nayland Stadium. I was just waiting for it. And here was the moment, look, all of us finally caught glimpse of Nayland Stadium. The tens of thousands of people walking down there, the sounds, the lights that were even on during the day, and just this beautiful scene of an incredible stadium. And I'm going to tell you, I remember as a kid walking up on that and the excitement, the anticipation uh, that flooded in my heart and the joy that it brought. Hey, by the way, doesn't this Alabama girl look good in orange? Anyway, she told me not to share that. But back to the stadium. Man, I loved it. Here's Endley Street Bridge right over here. And uh, man, we walked and we got to see all the things. And I got to thinking, I love game day. I love the feel of it. And I imagine that this is the same type of feeling, but maybe exponentially more for the Jewish family in Jesus's day. When springtime came and it was time for the the Passover, and to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people, all these families would leave their home from all around the world, and they would begin this journey to Jerusalem. They would find themselves going up towards the city and across the, the Mount of Olives, and then they would begin to see a sight that would amaze them. And that was the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. Here's some renderings of what it looked like there in the first century in the day of Jesus. In fact, the temple area is really, really close to some of our largest stadiums in size. In fact, the temple area would take up some 20% of the city itself. I can imagine the sight of this temple and what must have flooded the emotions, it must have flooded the hearts and the minds Of these Jewish families. And you see this is what serves. As the backdrop. Of John chapter 2 verse 13 today. That after this miracle at the wedding in Cana. This changing of water to wine. We find this. That when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover week. Perhaps one of the most important holidays for the Jewish people. A feast ordained by God to celebrate the Passover which took place in Exodus. Chapter 12, during the time of Moses, when the people were enslaved to Pharaoh. Now, we'll dive into this feast a little bit more down the road in the Gospel of John. But here we find Jesus, the faithful Jew of of all Jews, obeying the very law of God and attending the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Now, there's something a little bit unique about Passover time. In that day and time, for an entire month before Passover, the people got themselves and their community and their city ready. They would begin to repair broken bridges and roads. They would go into their homes and listen, talk about spring cleaning, by the way, where we get our spring cleaning from. They would begin to clean out everything in their homes and they would do a deep sweep and a deep clean of their homes. In fact, they would go out to their sidewalks and their roads and they would sweep and clean all of their sidewalks and roads and just in preparation for this time of celebration of Passover. But there's one problem we find here in John chapter 2. In a time where everything was clean, somebody forgot to clean the temple of God. Somebody forgot to clean the house of God. Watch what takes place here in verse 14. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money, the Bible says. You might look at this scene and go, why is there a petting zoo in the temple of God? You can imagine that Jesus is is furious at what seems to be a commercialization of his father's house. You go, why is he so upset? Why could he be so upset? We must realize how important the temple of God is to the people of God. In Genesis 22, 1 through 14, God had told Abraham to bring his son Isaac to the land of Moriah, the place where the temple sat, to offer him as a sacrifice on that mountain there. And Abraham, about to complete the sacrifice, we know that God stopped him and provided a ram, which was a substitutionary sacrifice. By the way, what a picture of how God would provide the sacrifice one day for the sins of us all. You see, it's in the same location at that temple nearly a thousand years later where God would test Solomon to build the first temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. You see, David had identified this land as a place for worshiping God and in 1 Chronicles 21, he purchased that land to be the temple of God. You see, Solomon's temple would stand until the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 B.C. Zerubbabel would come And he would lead the efforts to rebuild this second temple, which was completed in 516 B.C. And then Herod the Great would expand Zerubbabel's temple and make it the beautiful sight you saw just a minute ago. This computer animated idea of what the temple looked at. And this would have been the temple that Jesus would have walked on that day in John chapter 2 in preparation for the Passover And so why is there a petting zoo there? Why does it have this marketplace feel to it inside the temple? Well, here's the truth. Everybody needed an animal to worship God at this Passover feast. Everybody had to have an animal without spot without blemish, and trust me, there was a market to sell such animals at this feast. For many, it was just easier to pay for the animal than to travel some 80 miles home and to get one of their own. They were, they were selling sharp-looking sheep, bold and beautiful bulls, amazing oxen. I mean, they had their sales pitched down. It just seems too good to be true. But here's where the money changers come in. You see, Judea, Jerusalem, where the temple of God is, was under the rule of the Romans. And in the money, the currency they used was all Roman coin. However, Jewish law had required that every man should pay a temple tribute or a tax to the temple of half a shekel, according to Exodus chapter 30. A Jewish coin. Why? Because here's what Roman coins look like. You ready? And that's not God's picture on them. Those are Roman emperors. And under Jewish law, any type of graven image of someone like that is, is idolatry. And so it could not be used in the temple area at all. And so money changers had to be a part of the story to take Roman coin and to give that half shekel a Jewish coin. And we begin to see that the exchange really wasn't the problem for Jesus in John chapter 2. This money exchange is not really his problem. Uh, It was the rate of the exchange, which could be as high as 50% in that day. 50% exchange rate. So instead of blessing the people of God, the money changers and these vendors started taking advantage of the people of God by charging exorbitant prices. These sellers were preying on the poor. They were cheapening the worship of God, exchanging it for profiting themselves. The worship of God, the, the very reason for this feast, was becoming something that was external. The people were there, yes, but their hearts weren't. Worship was becoming materialistic. It was becoming about stuff instead of the creator of the universe. And so you know what happens here in John chapter 2? It's time to clean house. It's time to clean house. Watch this in verse 15 as this plays out. So he, by the way, Jesus, made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. Watch as he scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. All throughout the centuries, famous painters have depicted this scene. Here's one of my favorite right here, because it looks like Jesus is fixing to do a karate move on the people, right? It's like a kung fu master. I don't know what that is, but man, it's just been depicted all throughout a history of what took place here that day. You want to clear some animals from the temple area? Crack a whip. Want to send vendors running? Hey, flip their tables and scatter their coins. This was the first here in John chapter 2 of two times that Jesus would clean house. He would do so again three years later in which in Matthew 21 verse 13, he noted this, that the people were turning the temple into a den of thieves. Quoting Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus cleans house. Does that phrase sound somewhat familiar? If you were to search that today on Google, which I did this morning, here's here's a snapshot of what you would find. Elon Musk cleans house. Now, if you don't know, he bought Twitter. And you know what? There are thousands of articles about Elon Musk cleaning house at Twitter. So what does it mean to clean house? You ready? It means getting rid of unwanted baggage. It means getting rid of stuff you don't want anymore. For Jesus, cleaning house meant that he must rid his father's house of the baggage of sin and selfishness that it's set up. In verse 17, this scene reminded his disciples of what was written that zeal for your house will consume me—a passage written in Psalm sixty-nine, verse nine—a passage that pointed to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. But I want us to be careful here. I've oftentimes heard this passage used to justify angry outbursts. Well, hey, if Jesus can flip tables and whip people, I can—and fill in the blank. You see, anger is is tricky for us. Because you know what? We're really good at sinning with anger. We're really bad at controlling our anger. Jesus' anger here is not tainted by sin like our anger so often is. is. It's holy and it's righteous. It's justified. And I'll be honest with you, as I go over my life, it's really hard to find a whole lot of my anger that I could put those taglines with. But Jesus can. This text is not a lesson for you and I to find ways to, to flip tables or to crack whips. But really, it's really an invitation for us to ask the question of our own hearts and our lives. Is it time to start cleaning house? Is it time for you and I to begin to clean house? Is there some sin, some baggage in your heart and life that Jesus wants rid of? You see, we're reminded in this scene in John chapter 2 that Jesus takes sin seriously. In our culture, we try to paint Jesus as a tree-hugging hippie who exists alone to make us happy. But here in the text, he is depicted as a lion among sheep and cattle and predatory people, a lion ready to clean his father's house. Verse 18, after Jesus gets done, We find this, the Jews then responded to him. Now note this, the Jews are standing there. They are witnessing the materialization, the the commercialization of God's house and they are saying nothing to those who have done it. And yet now they confront Jesus. What sign can you show us to to prove your authority to do all of this? Hey, notice this. They aren't mad at Jesus for what he did. They knew what was taking place and what was wrong but not, neither had the courage nor the conviction to do anything about it. Let me remind you something of what James taught in James four seventeen If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So let me just remind you of those folks. These religious people on the scene are as predatory and guilty as the thieves, always wanting signs but never believing. And here's how Jesus answers them. Destroy this temple. Now, remind you, he's standing in this temple. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years for Herod to build this temple, to expand it. You're going to rise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled this moment. What he had said, didn't they believe the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken You see, we started this conversation out last week that the Gospel of John talks a lot about signs. Signs that Jesus was who he says he was. The signs in the scene here in John chapter 2 are pretty incredible. We started off last week. This water into wine thing was just amazing. But Jesus points them in this text to the greatest sign. From which he derives all his authority in heaven and on earth. And that is his coming death on the cross and his resurrection. They don't realize it. But Jesus is showing them the future of what is to be. Of how he will one day clean the house and the heart of everyone. Who would by faith put their trust in him. You see throughout the Old Testament the temple is where God met with his people. Then Jesus comes along, and in this text, we find that in and of himself, that Jesus is the very temple of God that called himself in flesh and walked with us. In fact, Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 12. I love this. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. You see, Jesus was the very temple of God walking around. And now, because of his death and his resurrection from the grave, you and I, by faith, by faith, are temples of God. Watch what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Honor God with your temples. Hey, can I tell you something real quick? There is no church in America. There is no church building around this world that houses God. This room is not God's house. It is not God's sanctuary. This is. You are Oftentimes we think God's confined to a space, but yet in Christ, your very body is the very temple of God through His Spirit. Paul reminds us of this, this truth that means we, therefore we are not our own. Jesus bought us at a price, therefore we must honor Him with our temple. That means this, that He must sit on the throne, not us. I love how one pastor put it. He said, everyone's body is a temple unto something. Did you know that? That your body is a temple unto something? Some people like to use their their body as a shrine unto themselves, bringing glory to themselves. Some are taverns and pubs serving the wrong spirits. Others are restaurants whose God is their bellies. Many, their shrine is a gymnasium or a sports arena. Some bodies are brothels where sex is God. Everyone's body is a temple unto something. But as believers, your heart, your life, your body is the very temple of God. There is a divine occupant inside of each of us. And so if there is sin, So if there is selfishness, if there is baggage inside of our temple, maybe, just maybe today, it's time for us to clean house. Watch as the passage ends here in chapter 2. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Remember, this is the goal of John's gospel. This is the goal of these signs. But Jesus would not, watch this, entrust himself to them, for he knew all the people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, here's another incredible truth about Jesus you, you can't fool him. You, you can make things as pretty as you want on the outside, and we can perfect an image. But we cannot fool the one who sees on the inside. And I'm going to tell you, we get really good on Sundays about making the outside look good. While on the inside, there's a whole lot of baggage we keep holding on to. And yet Jesus sees it. It lays bare before him. And while, yes, Jesus is depicted as this lion in the temple among sheep and cattle and predatory people, he's depicted as this lion that is cleaning house. Hear me, the testimony of the gospel of John. He is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And who desires to do that in your heart and life today. That's how he wants to clean house today. And so two steps for you and I. Number one, it's time we come clean. Hey, church, it's time that you and I come clean. About the baggage and the sin in our hearts and our lives, I call this a Psalm 51 moment, and and I've talked with so many of you about this before in the past, and I just want to—I want to encourage you. A part of coming clean in this conversation of, of understanding Jesus wants a clean house is that you and I must come clean about our sin. Now, now listen to what coming clean is. That doesn't mean minimizing it. Doesn't mean trying to justify it. It doesn't mean going, "Hey, I know I did this, but did you see what they did?" And that's not coming clean. Coming clean's a Psalm 51 moment, where you get alone and you spend some time in the Lord like David did. After being confronted in his sin, sin by which he abused his power as a king, sin by which he took advantage of Bathsheba, had an affair with her, sent her husband to the front lines, pulled back, and saw to that he would die. In the confrontation that the Holy Spirit of God had with David, he has a Psalm 51 moment, and I want you to hear me. Coming clean from our sin, and about our sin requires a Psalm 51 moment. Can I just read you his words? And how many times have I come here? And I realize that in my temple, that houses the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Christ. And there is sin evident in my life, And alive in my life. The countless times I've come to this text. And I've prayed it over my sin. Where I've I've come clean. Listen to David's words. Have mercy on me, O God. Psalm 51.1. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Would you blot out my transgressions? Wash me. For my iniquity cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, God, I, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Clean me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. God, would you create in me a clean heart? And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, Father, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Church, I'm going to tell you something. We love trying to clean other people's houses. We, we like trying to get everybody else right with God. And yet we are reminded in the text today, it is time for you and I to come clean. When was the last time you had a Psalm 51 moment about any sin in your heart and your life? Hey, when was the last time that like David, you got before the Lord and then you just gave him all the baggage? When we look in John chapter 2, we see an invitation for you and I to come clean. For the things that we're engaged in in secret where nobody sees. The things we do in dark places where we think nobody knows. The thoughts and the battles in our minds and our hearts. It's time we come clean. And then, when we come clean, we come to Jesus. And we ask him to clean house. We ask him to clean house. Now listen, I, I'm going to go ahead and clean my own house. Hey, really? You good at that? You're, you're really good at cleaning your own mess up? It's like me looking at one of my kids who's two years old. They've gotten in the mud and go, hey, look. No, they come inside. They're covered in mud. No, you go upstairs and you get yourself cleaned up. You know what happens? Everything else gets dirty. And they're dirtier. And that's exactly what it looks like when you and I try to clean house ourselves. You see, we've got to come clean. And we've got to let Jesus begin to clean house. I want to close with this illustration. This is a rendering, a picture of a hospital room that was tended by Philip Simmelweis who was born into the world in 1818, a world full of dying women. You see, the finest hospitals at the time would lose one out of six young mothers to the scourge of childbed fever. You see, it was routine back in that day for a doctor to begin his daily rounds. His routine was first to go to the dissecting room, where he performed autopsies. From there, he made his way directly to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash their hands. You see, Dr. Simmelweiss was the first man in history to associate this practice, these examinations, with the result of infection and of death. His own practice was to wash with a chlorine solution. And after 11 years in the delivery of 8,537 babies, he lost only 184 mothers to an infection, 1 in 50. And so he would spend the vigor of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues. Once he argued this, childbed fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I've shown how it can be prevented. I've proved all that I've said into a team of his doctors and colleagues. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. Wash your hands. All I'm asking you to do is for God's sake, wash your hands. But no one believed him. Doctors and midwives had been delivering babies for thousands of years without washing their hands. And no outspoken, hungry doctor was going to change them now. Similize died at the age of 47. His wash basins had been discarded. His colleagues laughing in his face. And the death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. It would be only decades later that his life-saving work would be recognized. And many more moms would be able to live and raise their children. Wash me was the anguished prayer of King David in Psalm 51. Wash was the message of John the Baptist. In John chapter one, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, said the towel draped Jesus to Peter. Without our being washed clean, church hear me, we all will die from the contamination of sin. So why not today come clean? Let Jesus clean house. Let him clean you up. Let him wash you clean today. Let's pray together, can we? As we pray, heading into this passage of Scripture in John chapter 2, I like the water and the wine better. That's a whole lot funner to preach. Oh, but how much we need these verses how much of our life is being concerned with somebody else cleaning house and failing to let Jesus clean our house to rid in us the package and the sin that's destroying our lives. And yet we are reminded here that this lion who would clean out the temple from the cattle and the sheep and the predatory people, is also the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world and your world and my world and your temple and my temple. We need only to come clean. Hey, what is it that you've yet to come clean with? What addiction, what relationship, what? What internet place do you access? What are you watching? Hey, where is it that there's become baggage? You've yet to come clean. What lie? Do you continue in what? What addiction do you still struggle with? Where is it that you've yet to come clean? Well, today as we see Jesus in the scripture clean house. It's time for you and I to come clean. I wonder if believers all across the room right now where you are wouldn't do just that. What we're going to sing in that chorus is the thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. I pray it becomes an anthem of freedom for so many of us here today, but also an invitation to come clean. Here in a moment, this altar will be open. Maybe you just want to fall on your knees before God, but I'm going to tell you something. Jesus wants to clean house today. And I'm asking him to start with mine. Start with me. Maybe that ought to be the prayer of all of us. Confessing our sins. Here it is, Jesus, I'm coming clean. And now I need you to clean house. Clean up this temple. Rid it of the baggage and the sin I want to honor you as Paul wrote with my body and my life and all that other junk is destroying me come clean and let Jesus come clean house in your life and as believers are praying hey who is it here in this conversation listen you've never come clean with the Lord you've never cried out as a sinner in need of a savior placed your faith and trust in Him. And the truth is, is that your body is a temple to you and to you alone. I'm going to tell you the good news of the gospel. And so no matter your story, no matter where you've been, where you're going, no matter where you come from, that right now today, by faith in Jesus, you'll save you. And he will give you new life. And if you are here and that is where your heart is, can I just encourage you to cry out for him to save you? Pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. Please save me. I place my faith and my trust in you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for rising again. I give you my life. Would you help me turn from my sin in myself? Jesus, I am yours. And- Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.